you'd be surprised when you when you make eye contact with people and and you develop even a slight connection humanly, like a humanistic connection, it makes the story a thousand times better and people open up. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 Knows. I am very excited to bring you author, former talk radio host, screenwriter, five-time Emmy-nominated investigative journalist, The Boston Globe, New York Daily News, among others, and overall badass Michelle McPhee. I know her because she's a writer-producer on City on a Hill. But she has uncovered some of the highest profile cases and criminals in the United States. You're going to hear this for yourself, but she is not afraid to go after anyone, mobsters, FBI, anyone, if they're in the way of her uncovering the truth on a story. She is unapologetically herself, including her Boston accent, which I love. And what I really love about her is that despite the fact that she literally puts her life on the line in the name of journalistic integrity, she is a total warm softy. We really don't know each other for that long, but she has already done things for me and this podcast just because she believed in me and liked what I was doing. That's who she is. She's generous, real, and seemingly connected to literally anyone who's anyone in Boston and beyond. Anyway, among countless other rejections, her story aligns with 10,000 No's in one way because one of the most important meetings of her professional life was interrupted by Michelle finding out that her fiance was cheating on her. She tells that story. It is very funny in her way of telling it. Enough of me describing her. She's so funny. I'd rather have you just get to know her directly, which you're about to do after a quick reminder that my book, 10,000 No's, How to Overcome Rejection on the Way to Your Yes, will be out wherever books are sold this October 27th, 2020. There's a pre-order link in our show notes to make it easy for you to get your hands on it. And if you dig this podcast, I know the book will be up your alley. There will also be links to Michelle's books. She has a bunch of them, including her next book, Operation Mean Streets, which is in production to become an HBO scripted series. In it, she and David Graziano infiltrate MS-13, the world's most dangerous gang. As always, you can find a link to that book at 10,000knows.com in our episode show notes, as well as everything you need to know about Michelle. Also, want to remind you, if you're finding value in 10,000 Knows, please share it with your friends and followers on social media and rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts so more people can hear stories from incredible people like Michelle McPhee. Here she is. I was born in Alaska, if you can believe that. My what? father was in the Army. Yeah. Yeah, I was born on an Army base, Fort Bassett in Alaska. My mother was 18. She had to go through survivalist training because it's one of those towns that's like out of a horror movie where it's dark 24 hours, it's freezing. So I was born deaf in one ear, tone deaf, people would say, both for the rest of my life in a lot of ways. But yeah, so I was born up in a trailer park in Alaska on an Army base. My parents were from Massachusetts, and eventually we moved back to the Boston area. How old were you when um, you I moved back? To, like, like, do you remember being like, baby, in, like five? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't, don't remember. remember I don't Alaska. remember being cold at all. Yeah. 
No, I mean, my parents always loved Alaska. I always had a husky growing up, Loki, the god of trouble that was like my dog. And so that was sort of the origin story in Alaska. Then I went to school in Wakefield because of busing. You remember, busing was big in Boston back in that day. So what, what town were you in? You went, you went to school in Wakefield. How far away did you have to go? And what was the town that you were in? We actually ended up moving to Wakefield, but I'm originally from East Boston and I would move back there. So my East Boston roots are strong and I moved there when I was a teenager and I've pretty much been there since. I own a place. I lived in New York for more than a decade working at the New York Daily News. But really my whole, um, my life story, my journalism story started at the wrong end of a gun in a lot of ways because remember the Boston Globe had this pretty prestigious co-op program. And it was like the creme de la creme for anybody who wanted to be a journalist. Now I have two little sisters, um, you know, both of them were tattletales. I never was. I could always protect a source. We laugh about that now. But they were like little rats. <laughs> I would never give anybody up. And that was a good start to being a reporter. And the Globe would have, I'd hear about this co-op program. And UMass Boston is directly across the street, you know, because it's next to BCI. UMass Boston is directly across the street from the Globe at the time on Morrissey Boulevard. There was this old Irishman who would protest the globe every day and wave a big giant Irish flag in front of the globe and say the globe is discriminating against pretty much what he meant as the working class. It was like class elitism. And, you know, you had all these rich Yankees that were running the globe. And this guy would argue that they had a thing against Irish immigrants, which is ironic now at the time. And so I got him to inquire and I got my school at UMass Boston, some of the counselors and teachers to inquire why this co-op program at the Globe was not open to state school kids and maybe made allegations of discrimination against the working class. <laughs> and I became the very first UMass Boston co-op at the Boston Globe. And I'll never forget walking in there. And they did look you down like, well, we're letting whiskey tango into the newsroom now. That's so, hysterical. But when I got Yeah, it was in 1995, right? I was still in UMass. And do you remember that big Steak Tips massacre at the 99 in Charlestown? You know what's funny? I just, I actually just heard about that. I didn't know about it. And I just heard about it about a month ago when I was in New York. I was with a buddy of mine and he's, he's got a friend uh, who's from Charlestown and told me the whole deal was like really you know, very integrated into that. He told me about the 99 thing and said it was nuts, which I I didn't know before that. So. Well, now we call it the 95 because four guys died there. So it's the 99 chain restaurant and it's the 95 to yeah. us. I remember yeah. that time. But, uh, you know, I was living in the North End at the time and working at a place called Cafe Roma. And Cafe Roma was awesome because it had like this bulletproof glass in the windows and it was all old gangsters. And so this all ties into like the FBI and how I always questioned them. And it started from my time at the Cafe Roma. I also worked at a nightclub called Destinations that was over Haymarket Station. Bobby Brown used to smoke crack in there. It was a crazy, crazy place. We used to call it lacerations because everybody would get stabbed. There would always be a stabbing. <laughs> so I worked at these two places. And at Cafe Roma, there was this nerdy guy that would come in all the time. Mobsters obviously were there, hence the bulletproof windows. And he would, you know, drink a coffee, read the paper. I didn't take much note of him until I left my job at Cafe Roma and then went to Destinations, a.k.a. Lacerations, to work. 
the FBI was having an award ceremony at the nightclub. They rented it out. And they gave an award to this guy who was working undercover at the Cafe Roma. I'm like, how dumb are you? Like, you don't think that this is a small city. So this is... So this is like when I first started to know that the FBI was not always, I, I think in the words of a federal prosecutor would say to me, McPhee, do not underestimate the incompetence of the FBI. So this would be a, a theme throughout my entire reporting career. And when the Steak Tips massacre took place, and, you, and I, I know you know the story now, but people who don't, it was you know a, a drug dispute in the North End between some high level you know, drug dealers and some low-level drug dealers. It turned into fisticuffs at a at a, one of my favorite places in Boston, the, the uh, Victoria Cafe. Uh, you you might know because they have the cigar shop underneath that every cool big Hollywood star goes to. If you haven't been there, they're going to invite you. Trust me. I don't think and, I have been there. Really? I'm, not, I'm obviously not a cool big Hollywood star. See? Oh, you absolutely <laughs> are. You're like a legend. Come on. Oh, I am going to have to get the Richios to invite you in. You have to get on the wall of fame. I'll take it. So they're the guy, these guys from the North End think they're getting out of town. So they drive one mile into Charlestown, which was an Irish neighborhood, and they think they're safe. They sit down for lunch at the 99 restaurant. Well, little did they know that Bobby Luisi, the mobster whose family they were disputing with, loved steak tips at the 99. They just happened to have this chance encounter to come in for lunch, and it turned into a bloodbath. You know, one... One of the Luisi's mouth to one of the low-level drug dealers, I'm going to kill you. That guy calls his father, who was like this tripwire Vietnam vet. The father shows up, starts handing guns under the table. Two off-duty cops were sitting nearby. Next thing you know, they stand up and they start shooting. And it is crazy. So I'm a co-op, pretty new, at the Boston Globe. And one of the editors stood up and said, hey, there's uh, an event going on with shots fired in Charlestown. And the now, I'm not supposed to be reporting. I'm supposed to be, you know, sorting faxes. That's how long ago it was and getting coffee. And I'm like, I know where that is because the recent graduate from Harvard had no idea where Charlestown was when we were in Dorchester, <laughs> which was absurd. So I'm like, I know where it is. I know where it is. And of course, I go there and I know everybody because they were all from the North End. So it was, they made arrests, four people dead. The father's on the lam. The next day is the arraignment for the, for the gunman, they're still looking for the father. He comes into his son's arraignment and sits down in the back of the court next to me. And I know him because I've been working at the cafe Roma. So I literally was like this to the stadies. You know, you got to <laughs> tilting my head towards the perp they're looking for. He's the subject of a massive manhunt. And they got him right there in the court. Well, I was, now I have a byline. The Boston Globe needed me. I knew everybody. I knew all these people. I was getting all this information. And I'll never forget my parents framed my very first story about the 99 massacre because it was next to Mike Barnacle's name, not because of me. It was like, look at you, you're next to Mike Barnacle, who was a very famous columnist at the time. And they still have that, I think. My dad still has that somewhere. Um, but what would happen next is I got a call from a magazine, Boston Magazine, and they said, why don't you write a magazine story for us? I'm like, I, I really don't know how. Come on into my office. You know, we'll help you out. And this guy really helped me. We wrote the magazine story until probably two o'clock in the morning. The magazine story came out and I was rollerblading down Hanover Street in Boston with a friend of mine. And it was a scene out of a movie where these wise guys jumped out of two cars, threw us on the ground, put a gun to my head and said, if you ever write anything else, 
about my family again. We're going to kill you. Now, I didn't call the cops because I knew better. I was from the neighborhood. I called Kevin Cullen, who was a Globe reporter, who called a statey named Bobby Long, who was working all the Whitey Bulger cases and aided the FBI. The statey went to them and said, leave her alone. But the best thing that came out of it is that Matt Storen had been the editor of the Boston Globe at the time. He had moved over to the New York Daily News. They were looking for a young, scrappy reporter. He liked the Boston Magazine story on the State Six Massacre, offered me a job, and I quit college and moved to New York. And, I'm, and I swore I was never writing about the mob again. Never. Do you know what my very first story was? John Gotti Jr. got locked up with a <laughs> trunk full of horse tranquilizers. And it is very funny because both of these stories came full circle. Bobby Luisi, whose father and brother and cousins were killed in the 99 restaurant, he became a very big, big shot in the Philadelphia mob with Skinny Joe Merlino. He gets caught trafficking tons of coke. He decides to flip, gives up the whole Skinny Joe Merlino crew. Now he's a rat. The U.S. Marshals put him in WITSEC in the Witness Protection Program as the Reverend Alfonso Esposito and gave him a church in Tennessee. So no, he's hiding what? out in Memphis, really? Tennessee. Yes, it's all true. This is all like, so yeah. I'm at Target. I go home six months ago when we could still travel. I go home and I feel somebody tap me on the shoulder and I turn around and it's the Reverend Alfonso Esposito, a.k.a. Bobby Luisi, at the Target in Revere. And he's like, Michelle, I just have to make amends to you. I didn't mean to have my family threaten to kill you all those years ago. So this guy just comes back into my life. Now he wants me to write his book. And the other <laughs> project I'm working on here in L.A. is with John Gotti Jr. <laughs> so oh just my God. all you these know, stories come full circle decades later. And that is the mark of a good reporter when you have sources on both sides. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny. I just want people knowing, you know, we've been doing a bunch of these interviews over Zoom because of the current affairs. And I don't know when when this will be released. So just know that this is over Zoom. And so every time I, I try to interrupt you, there's like some kind of a weird delay. So I'm, I have a smile plastered on my face so you can see it, but the audience can't. But I'm just <laughs> I could listen to you talk like for 12 hours straight because I love like skinny Joe Louise, like, like the, the names that you throw out and it's just like, right. It's just like, just rolls off your tongue and the stories you have and the people you're involved with. It's, it's just amazing to me that you are like that, that you actually alive? are in. Yeah. The one that you're alive and two, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that you, you see in the movies and you're like, Oh, that's a cool, you know, that, the, you know, that's a cool movie or what, what is it? Uh, Black Mass, you know, I'm like, you are living this. And, you know, there's so many things that are firing off in my head about, you know, relationships and how that's what got you going. But tell me about like, how old were you when the guy, when you were on your rollerblades and the guy, you know, pulled a gun to your head, how old were you? And how do you like, just keep going and just not fear for your, I mean, do you fear for your life or do you care? Do you not care? Are you, are you absolutely like fearless or are you just kind of like, well, how does that all work? Cause I don't think most people would have a gun pulled to their head and then just be like, yeah, I'm going to go to a story on Gotti. <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> to me. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that it's not fearlessness. It's like, um, 
I think maybe audacity, right? Which is something that you talk about all the time is that just having the guts to take a no and turn it into a yes and it's audacity. And look, you know, facts are very stubborn things. And when you, my career is making sure that people are armed with all the facts before you make an opinion. And which is why I'm friends with John Gotti Jr. today, because I've done enough information, I've done enough research over the last few decades to know that it works both ways. The FBI pulls extortions just like the mafia does. You know, their, their methods are very similar. You don't want to help us out? Oh, what a shame. We're going to lock up your wife. You don't want to help us out? Oh, well, your uncle doesn't have a visa. We're going to have to kick him out of the country. Like that kind of stuff is very similar. I mean, obviously it's not the bloodletting, but I think that, you know, you and I talked about this when Mayhem came out and, you know, it's the anniversary of the Boston Marathon. People are going to be running the Boston Marathon in September and, I think that you know, we're owed these questions. And so when you ask me if I'm afraid, I'm more afraid of, you know, being shut up by government entities than I am facing down anybody in the mob at this point. You know, uh, I've been on the ISIS hit list. I've pissed off plenty of dirty politicians. I've taken down, you know, dirty cops. And I ask questions of the CIA and the FBI. I think at this point, if something were to happen to me, it would be suspicious. <laughs> There'd be a lot of people who would say, hey, how did that happen? So in a way that me having a big mouth and constantly being out there with these stories might be almost like a, a protective shield. Yeah. Well, let, let's go back for a second because you kind of like, I'm, I'm laughing that you will go into all of this, but I was like, what, tell me about growing up. And you were like, bing, bang, boom. And all of a sudden you were 20 years old. Like where I want to know, where <laughs> did this come from? Like, like, what were you like as a kid? Were you the kid who was, who was, um, you know, what were you like in class, in school, with your friends? Did you play sports? Did you, did you do extracurricular? Like what, what, I'm so curious about like little Michelle McPhee and how she got to be like, you know what I mean? Cause you just describe it. You kind of like breezed through all of it. And then all of a sudden you're like, boom, you're there, you know, doing the co-op thing. But what, what was it like? Like, like, would you have, if, if you went back and interviewed kids from your elementary school or, or junior high or whatever, would they have been like, oh yeah, of course McPhee is, that's what she does. Like totally makes sense. Or would they be shocked? You know, that's funny. That's a really good question. I never thought about it before, but I think they would be shocked. I was the biggest nerd in sports. I played catcher in right field. So I think you know what that means. I stunk. <laughs> I, you know, I think I ran like a dying swan that just got shot. I was awful. I was absolutely awful at sports. And my dad, you know, we have three girls. Yeah, I'm the oldest of three girls. And I think he, you know, he was an army guy. He was rough and tumble. He desperately wanted someone who was good at sports. So he would like sign me up for every sport and I would stink at every single one, every single solitary one. And I'd be the one that'd be like, please don't put me on the field. Please don't put me on the field. Like I want to be back. Right? I'd have a book, I'd have a Judy Bloom book or a diary or scribbling notes. Like, please don't put me on the field. Please don't put me on the field. I don't want it back. I don't want to strike out. Like, it was awful. But my poor father would try, try, try to get, like, this athletic kid that he was never going to have. And it certainly wasn't going to be me. My sisters were a little bit better. So, yeah, no, I was more of a nerd, like, reading Secret Garden. I was kind of like a goody-two-shoes. I got straight A's. 
Uh, really? I have the, the only skill I have in life is a speed reader. Like I can't run, but I can speed read. So I would finish the test before everybody else and then sit back and go, nah, nah. <laughs> and the teachers would yell at me like, you didn't finish that test. There's no way. And I'd be like, yeah, I did. And I would. And, and I don't think anybody really knew. How fast, uh, how fast can you read a book? Like, just, just curious, like right now, a full size, you know, 200 page book yeah. or something like that. It's been a while. Isn't it funny? Your attention span as you get older. I mean, I can read 2000 tweets in a minute, but right? <laughs> like a, a whole book, it takes longer now because I'm old and distracted. But yeah, you know, as a kid, I could read a book a day very easily. What? And I love like Judy Bloom. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was I was like voracious reader. I just oh that is a superpower. I I was so slow. Like I I feel like my retention was great if I loved the subject matter, but I was so slow. And now I even find like I'll read a book or even watch a movie that I absolutely love, and then I'll talk about it, and I'm like, wait. How did that end again? And it's it's almost like the emotions of it are what I cling to. Like I cling to moments of it. And there are sometimes uh that I'll forget some plot stuff. I'll forget, you know what I mean? But but reading wise, I I would say I'm a big reader, but I'm so jealous that you're that fast. I'm so jealous. Yeah. But I have the same reaction as you. Like I take away, even when I'm listening to somebody to do an interview, I really hear the five quotes I want and I had nothing else, which is why I have to tip record everything because in my mind, I pull out exactly what I need. And it's the same with reading fast like that. It's like, what, what strikes me exactly what you just said, watching a movie is the emotion. People will talk about characters and shows that I love and have watched for years. And I don't know their names. I just know if I like them or not like them. I like the, what they, their actions are. Right. Like, so I, I'm the same way. I think it's, it's, it's a similar it's in, we're driven by emotion more than we are by, I, I, don't, I don't want to say intellect. I don't want to say we're a couple of dummies, but I think you know what I mean. Like we yeah. respond to the humanity rather yeah. than well, than the. Th- that's interesting to me that you will, um, when you interview someone, you pull out quotes because I have found with this podcast, I, everybody, I mean, I literally, I say this and I, I, I hate when people say this because I'm like, oh, come on, just give us, like people will say, who's your favorite? I'm like, you know, maybe there are a couple of stories that are really particularly harrowing, but I'm like, I'm like, I really do like pretty much everybody I've sat down with, but then there'll be times like Deirdre, my wife will listen to all of these because she's a big runner. So she'll listen to them. And sometimes she won't listen right away and she'll come back and she'll be like, oh, remember this, 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 and telling me. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, that's right. And I can't believe that I was so engaged in the conversation in the moment. Like I really am really listening. And then down the line, I could forget a pretty important fact about that person or about their story. And maybe it makes sense because I've done so many of them now, but it's interesting to hear from you when you're like, how do you do that when you're going in and actually just, you know, tell us a little bit of the process of the research that you do for an article. Like, for example, I'm just looking at this that that Ayla found for me that was, you know, uh, you won the New York Society of the, I don't even, Solarians Feature News Award for an article titled The Days After about the September 11th, 2001 attack. Um, there was another article for the Daily, uh, you, you became first female police bureau chief for the New York Daily News in response to an article you wrote where you received death threats in 2003. Like when you go to write those stories, 
I know it's all, you know, you're talking about relationships, but like, how do you physically start to compile information? How do you talk to people? How do you go about, do you, is there one particular process or is it like me as an actor where for a certain role, it, there's kind of an overall thing I could say of how I work, but it's a little bit different for each role. Are you like that? Like depending on the particular subject matter and the venue and all of that, how, how does it work? Like, I don't really know how your job works. And that's a great question, too, because um, I think what's a lost a lot right now in journalism, which is dying, it's sputtering its last breath, it's really kind of sad to see it happen, is what makes you such a good actor is you study people. And I think what makes me a good reporter is I study people. For me to really be able to do my job is I want to, I go to your house, I sit down with you, I sit across from you, I do it, you know, I want to have a personal connection because there's a million different, everybody has, um, Everybody has a motive, right? So there's, there's politics. Crime is a great beat because it hits every aspect of politics. Class, race, you know, diversity, um, political leanings. Anything you can possibly think of is, you know, in the mindless menace of violence, which is what Bobby Kennedy says about crime, right? Like, so it, it, it touches everybody. My process is I have to sit down with you and get to know you. And initially I'll tell somebody, okay, we can be off the record for a minute, let them get comfortable with me. And you'd be surprised when you, when you make eye contact with people and, and you develop even a slight connection humanly, like a humanistic connection, it makes the story a thousand times better and people open up and then you have a tendency to get the truth. I mean, I have a million funny stories of how, you know, right now I'm writing a show that's being developed with Kiefer Sutherland. And I want, you know, I've talked to you about it. I want you to play one of the guys. And um, that agent that I sat down with, oh God, was it five years ago? And I, at the time I was going through, and this is just a personal story, but how things, you know, you still have your life. Like you're, you're chasing very important stories. And this particular story was about this genocide heir, this woman who was hiding in New Hampshire. She was... Uh, you know, an immigrant of the year. She got the immigrant of the year award from Manchester, New Hampshire. She had these three beautiful daughters that were lovely. Everybody thought she was the perfect, you know, person next door. She was really a monster. As it turned out, she was one of the leading Rwandan genocide heirs during the terrible, terrible, you know, uh, ethnic cleansing of the Tutsis in 1994. She was someone who was witnessed like beating a guy, you know, with a club and a little killed a little boy and you know, assassinated a nun while she was pregnant. Like she was a complete monster, crazy monster. Now, how did I get this interview? Everything is a negotiation. You know, the, um, this is right around the time that the Obama administration was making a deal about the Iran nuclear program. And they, and part of this deal is they were going to squash criminal cases that were already existing against Iranians who were selling nuclear warheads. You know, they were essentially procuring and selling stuff that would make a nuclear bomb. And one of the cases was in Massachusetts. And I had spent a couple of months with some sources working on that story. And I was ready to break it out because the guy was going on trial. So the Homeland Security's investigations from DHS was like, McPhee, you can't run the story. You got to sit on the story. Why would I do that? You know, this is a sit down now. Why would I sit on that story? It's a good story. This guy is a piece of garbage. You're going to let him go. What? How can I possibly switch this? Well, well, what do you need from us to make the story go away? I need 
an interview with the head of HSI who's got this war crimes unit that is prosecuting this woman from Manchester, New Hampshire, because they never let these guys talk, you know, these federal agents. So the day comes, they agree to it. It's a big negotiation process. I kill the story, it never runs. I get an interview with this guy. Day comes, I was living with a firefighter at the time, we were engaged. And as I'm interviewing this federal agent, and I'm using my phone as a recording device, a text comes up and says, did you see the picture of, you know, my, my fiance at the time with that waitress from the restaurant next door? And I was like, what? So literally, I found out my engagement was over and he was cheating during this interview that was critically important, took months to set up and all of these different things in the middle of this interview. And I had to sit there and, and I, we laugh now because we're friends. And I'm like, and you would not shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> he kept talking and he was writing words in Kigali. He's telling me about, I didn't hear, Matt, when I tell you not one word of what this guy said. Not one word, because all I can think about is what the fuck? (laughs) 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 One of these really important interviews, and it took forever to get it. So, I mean, it really, you know, people have real lives going on in the middle of trying to chase down these stories, or at least I do. My life is always a little more complicated, I think, than others. But you still get the story, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's very funny that him and I remained friends to this day. And, and you, and so when you go do it now, now you, first of all, I, I completely agree. I never would have, before I started this podcast, the biggest concern I had, I said, no one's going to talk. No one's going to want to tell like their intimate stuff. No one's going to talk to me. And I've been shocked that everybody wants to talk. Everybody actually, a lot, most people, anybody who sits down, like they're willing to tell their story. And I'm wondering, like, do you find that sometimes with when when you sit down with someone who has a reason to, you know, like doing a podcast, like people know if a guest sits down with me, they know I'm on their side. I'm kind of like I'm a champion of them. I'm trying to share them with the world in some way. When you sit down with someone, they've got to be thinking like, I don't know how this woman's going to, you know, paint me to the public and and it's not going to necessarily look good for me. How do you find rapport with them? And, and like, how have you, have you had to, do you have to win them over? And have you ever then won someone over and then realized like, oh, they're really a bad person. And it's my job to expose the truth of them. And how does that work? Well, it happens all the time. You know, like um, the former mayor of Boston, Tom Menino, and I had that sort of relationship. He was like a father figure to me. When I first started in this business, he helped me out a lot. He gave me a recommendation to get a job at the New York Daily News. But when he screwed up, he screwed up and he knew it. And we we would go back and forth all the time where I had this like fatherly like affection for him, but I'd still take him down and he knew it. And I think that people respect that. Like they have a begrudging respect when you're honest, you know, I've interviewed plenty of people who know they're going to, this is not going to be good for them. You know, there was a, a judge in New York city when I was working at the New York daily news who was writing, do you remember Linda Fairstein? Now she's getting a lot of press because she was one of the central park jogger. I mean, the central park five prosecutors. Uh, 
Okay, yeah, I don't know the name, but I know, yeah, I know that case. That's so but- at the time, none of us knew that, of course, there was this malfeasance in the back of the backdrop of this case, right? I didn't cover it that significantly because it happened right before I got to New York, but I knew Linda Fairstein. Linda Fairstein had a police detail because she received so many death threats because of this case. Now we know why, but no one knew why then. And so another judge, Marilyn Diamond, and Marilyn Diamond was the type that had like a leopard print miniskirt on under her robes and dressed to the nines and was from the Upper East Side, a very well-to-do from New York. And she decided she wanted a police detail too, because it looked really cool to walk into the hair salon with with the hot, handsome NYPD detectives behind you with a little earpiece. So she started writing threatening letters to herself. And... (laughs) You can't write this yeah. stuff. You can't make this stuff up. I couldn't. I mean, so the cops who got the detail hated her because she was the type of person who was like, you know, you can stay outside in my apartment, but you can't use the restroom. You know, like she was just not a nice person. So the NYPD guys started to suspect that Nile was not what it was appearing. So the intelligence division of the NYPD started this undercover investigation with Marilyn Diamond. And they had one of their detectives pose as a waiter at her favorite upscale restaurant at like Cipriani's, right? So she's at Cipriani's and the waiter is an undercover cop. Um, and he took her wine glass and sure enough, her fingerprints on the wine glass matched the fingerprints they lifted off of a stamp. And she got caught writing herself these letters. Now I have to go to her house and confront her with this information. I got the exclusive and I'm like, Judge Diamond in this woman was so, you know, I'll probably get sued for even saying this now, but she was so um, unaware of like and just how bad this thing was. And she acted just as, as entitled in this interview. And I'm like, why would you invite me into your house so I can look around at the splendor and make you look worse right? <laughs> than you already do? But because she was so nice to me, I toned it down. And I think that's the negotiation that you're constantly making with yourself. Like, do, yeah. you, do you need to go to the end of the line to destroy someone? Or do you try to, like, even it out based on their personality? It's a judgment call. And I think the reason that people talk to you, Matthew, is because you're, you're just so warm. And there's plenty oh. of people that have tried to interview me that I wouldn't talk to at all. It's, oh. it's all energy. I really believe it's all energy. I, I, I agree with you. First of all, thanks for saying that, but I, I agree with you. You, you kind of, um, yeah, you have a, uh, you have a sense of someone if they're kind of really going after something, I, I'm the same way. Like, you know, there are people will come for interviews for podcasts and stuff and, and you could just go listen to what they've done. You can listen for like a couple of minutes and kind of get a sense of like, am I going to jive with this person? Are they asking kinds of questions that I feel like are, you know, like asking about things of substance and and all of that. And then you can kind of make a judgment call from there. You know, let me ask you something that actually that, that to, to segue into this, because I think this is cool for my listeners, which is you said something before where you did that article about the 99 cent store. And then they were like, we want you to write um, an article for, some magazine in Boston. I, I forget exactly what it was. It, it doesn't matter at this point. The point is you had never done it. And you're like, I don't know how to do that. And they, somebody came on and helped you do it. And they just wanted the goods that you brought and you figured out the, the what, 
but the why was yours. It was unique to you. You did the same thing with City on a Hill. You've never written for TV before, but they but they wanted what was in your brain and in your experience. And so they bring you on and you got Tom Fontana, who's a legend in the TV world as a, okay. as a writer and a showrunner. And he brings you on and he, and I would assume the staff and Jen Todd and everybody who's, you know, these veterans of, of Hollywood teach you how to write for TV. Now, a lot of people that write into me about this show, they'll say like, they're afraid to go into something, like they don't know exactly what they're doing. So they're afraid to go. And I'm always like, you got to go you figure it out as you, as you go along. How have you found that experience of transitioning from it's not like it's unrelated. I mean, you're still writing, you know, and and in particular, you're still writing about Boston. But how how have you in your mind uh, made transitions like that? And what would your advice be to people? First, how did you do it? And then second, like, what is your advice to people that are maybe like wanting to break out of where they are, but they're like afraid that it's not fully in their wheelhouse? I love that question. Um Look, I'm a big believer in kicking in doors and making things happen. But with City on a Hill, a lot of it is you make your own luck. And I am incredibly blessed. Chuck McLean, who is uh, one of the show creators of City on a Hill, and Jimmy Cummings, who was an actor in the show. We grew up together in Boston, and they were looking for somebody who knew Boston. And they, I'm like, I've never written a script in my life. I, Matt, I didn't know how to open Final Draft. Literally didn't even know how to open Final Draft. Like, I've never opened it before. I didn't know anything about it. And I was blessed. Like, this is where you just have to look and see that serendipity plays a role. And uh, you just have to have your eyes wide open to it and be brave enough to step into it. But I was, I couldn't design that in my wildest dreams for that scenario to take place. So I met with Tom Fontana. Tom Fontana will tell you a story about how when he was a young playwright in Buffalo, he had a play that was playing in Western Massachusetts and in, um, God, I'm embarrassed, Williamstown. I never go out that way. Uh, and Bruce Paltrow, I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow, Bruce Paltrow went with his family to this town and his wife really wanted Bruce to see this play and Bruce blew him off a little bit, but he gave Tom Fontana a shot at writing at St. Elsewhere. Now, Tom never wrote a script before either. And here's Bruce Paltrow saying, okay, I'm going to give you a shot, kid. You write for St. Elsewhere. And obviously Tom Fontana is now Tom Fontana, the legendary creator of Oz and Homicide and all shows that I was obsessed with as a young crime reporter. And Bruce said, you don't owe me anything. Just pay it, pay it forward, pass it on. And when Tom Fontana, I had an interview with him and now, I'm, you know, we're in his, the Vatican, we call it, his beautiful place where we rode and where he lives, uh, you know, in, on, in the meatpacking district. And I'm all excited. And he told me that story. And I am not a crybaby at all. I mean, I'm a type rough and tumble crime reporter. And I teared up because it's something I believe in. And it's something that, think about how long ago that was, that Tom Fontana made that promise to Bruce Paltrow. And he... And he does it. He pays it forward to this day. And I believe the same thing. I really try, you know, to, I got lucky. I don't have a fancy college degree. I never finished college. I quit UMass Boston and moved to New York and became a New York Daily News reporter. You know, um, when that business started to die, I got a radio show. Believe it, with this voice, a radio show. And I was the only female with like a political talk radio show in the Boston market for a long time. And then when the radio business died, I had to reinvent myself again. 
And this time, I really wanted to be like David Simon. David Simon worked with Tom Fontana on Homicide and then went on to create The Wire. And I'm like, if David Simon can do it, he got laid off from the Baltimore Sun. He was making 40 grand a year. Now he lives in Malibu. Like, you know, I'd like to be David Simon now. <laughs> and I, I got lucky. It really was I got lucky and fortunate. And then I just kept going. So I'm, it's again, it goes back to the very beginning, relationships. Relationships to everything. I'm I a, had a relationship with Chuck and Jimmy and they helped me out. And then they introduced me to Tom and then Tom helped me out. And then Tom helped me out when I had a script that went to HBO. And, you know, that's what's happening now. So now I'm writing a pilot for HBO. I can't even believe that's happening to me. But here's the thing. And, and, and I love your humility. It's awesome. I hear what you're saying. You are lucky because there are so many talented people out there in our industry. I'm telling you, I always say this and people are like, oh, you're being nice. I'm like, no, there are so many people out there more talented than me that might not work as much as me. I'm lucky. You know what I mean? I agree with you. Lucky, fortunate, whatever you want to say. On the other hand, as I listen to you, I'm going to say, it's not luck. It's karma. It's not luck. It's like a, it's... (sighs) It, 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 I mean, it, it's also luck and right place at the right time. But you make your own opportunities by the way you treated those people when they didn't, when you didn't know that they had anything to give you. I'm pretty much guessing that you were cool to them and you were generous to them because I know you. And, you know, we're not best friends, but I know you well enough to know your spirit that then Chuck has something. Of course, he's going to be like, well, let's get McPhee involved in this, you know. But that doesn't happen if you were you know, if you were not cool to him when you didn't know you could get anything from him. And that's like a big thing I have is like, if you see, if you're out with someone, you see how they treat the waiter, see how they treat the bus boy, see how they treat the bartender. Cause I bartended forever. And like, you know, you, you know, when, when nobody needs anything from you, how do they treat you? And, and that's kind of a great judgment. And, And like the thing about Tom Fontana, you know, you know, what's funny, like, I, I I would love to have him on this show. He I don't really know a ton about him, but the one thing, and, and now I've gotten to know him a little bit through City on a Hill, but it's not like we're like, I don't, you know, haven't had like long conversations with him. But the one thing I always heard about him, because my friend Blake Robbins years ago did Oz and like, he was like, Tom Fontana was so... And, and I've heard it from so many people since. He's like, he was so much about like building a family and yep. and and works with the same people over and over again. He's like he's really loyal. He's really and oh. I know someone who's outside of this business who's friends with him. And he's like this guy who's like a you know like a badass like you know was a DA in, in Manhattan and everything. And he's like he's like oh Tom Fontana. He's like he's just a he is who he is. And like he if you treat him well, he treats you well. And it's like that that's the thing that Hollywood. You know, just before we were saying, you know, people are, what was the expression you used? I love that. They, they steal your wallet and then help you look for it. Yeah. yeah, I love that. They steal your wallet and help you look for it all but, but, the time. Like Sonny Grasso did it to me, God rest his soul. But, but, but hold on. But there is that. But there's also the Tom Fontanas and the Jen Todds and the Michelle oh, McPhee's and the and people. Jen in Todd. This- Can we just talk about Jen? I mean, the, she was like one of the legendary women in this business when she was in her 20s. Yeah. She, she really paved the way for so many women to make it in this field when they didn't want any women out here. Yeah. And that's, and that's, a, that's, I just, I just bring it up because people that are listening, it's like, you know, if you're, you're looking at Hollywood or if you're young and you're, you're kind of coming to this industry and you're not sure what it's like, don't, don't. 
rather than trying to get ahead, like, actually, I love that. Pay it forward. It's like when you pay it forward, it, it really, I do think it comes back to you. Usually not in the time frame that you want it to come back. It usually seems like it takes 10 or 20 years longer than you wish it would take. But it does kind of come back to you. If you put good out there, it does kind of come back to you in the form of, relationships in the form of people, in the form of eventually opportunities and all that stuff. But man, I've talked a lot on this one. I, I, I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, cause you know, I, I don't want to make it so, so long and, and you can always come back on here whenever you want, but let me, let me give you my little final three, um, my little pop quiz I like to give okay, uh, at the end here. Um, Unless there's anything like, actually, before we even get to that, let, let me just say, what's the biggest, the biggest no that you got where you thought maybe like, this is, this is it. I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. Whether it was in your control, out of your control. Was there any time when you were like, I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. I'm dead in the water. And if so, how'd you get out of it? Um, well, you know, I've been publicly attacked a ton. And anyone who watched that Aaron Hernandez documentary on Netflix came away from that thinking, this homophobic woman. Now, the irony is when I moved to L.A., I moved in with my best friend, who was a former senator in Massachusetts, Jared Barrios, who passed gay marriage. And I wrote a ton of pro-gay marriage stories for the Boston Herald at the time. Um, I've been on fighting for LGBT rights forever. And I was living with Jared and his partner in Echo Park when I first moved to LA. And that yet, you know, on Netflix, I was a homophobe who outed Aaron Hernandez and caused him to kill himself, which is absurd. Aaron Hernandez was a serial killer. And you know that story. He was the New England Patriots player who murdered his future brother-in-law and he had shot two strangers before that. And he was shooting people all the way back to his time at the University of Florida playing for the Gators. He was a violent wackadoodle who, you know, people covered up for him all the time because he could play football. And I think the biggest no I got in that is um, when you get portrayed falsely in this public narrative, it's all, I got death threats. You know, my name is in Boston. My name is not in our intercom because there were so many people showing up to threaten me at my own house. I was out with my little niece to lunch at Paparazzi in Wellesley, which is as fancy as it gets. It's like Bel Air. You know, you're at a restaurant in Bel Air and someone came up to me and said, you're disgusting and harassed me in front of my little niece. And it's unbelievable to me that people feel compelled to be that cruel when they don't because of a two second clip that was edited by the Netflix producers or the documentary producers, not necessarily by Netflix, um, that makes you look appalling. And people believe that narrative. I was getting a thousand death threats a day. That was a huge no. I was like, I cannot continue to put my head on the chopping block like this. What am I doing? I broke the story that the motive for that murder is that he had a long relationship. Uh, uh, he had a boyfriend since high school. It has nothing to do with sexuality. It has to do with the motive for a murder. Who cares? I don't care if he was sleeping with his pet. And, but if that's why he killed old Lloyd, it's relevant. And I think that biggest no right there is when people try to destroy you publicly, come after you on keyboard warriors out there on Twitter, like the Twitter mob is real. The Twitter mob is real. And the problem is, as those basement dwellers making those, you know, very public threats against you, all it takes is one nutbag 
to follow through with it. You know, out of all the threats I've gotten, I was threatened at gunpoint at the start of my career by the mafia, ISIS hit list, pissed off politicians, pissed off dirty cops. The Aaron Hernandez fans who knew nothing about me at all, except for what was portrayed in this little clip, were the most dangerous. And that was when I almost said, enough, I'm not doing this anymore. This is too much. I don't want to bring my family into it. You know, people writing things like your niece should be raped, your family should die in a fire. And oh my God, it was crazy. And I wrote a story about it for Newsweek. I'll send it to you. But it was um, it was really out of control. And that was the first time I wanted to hide and go under the covers and say, why am I even doing this? I didn't even get paid to write that story. I was on that radio show to promote Maximum Arm when the first it was Marathon Monday. I'm thinking about Martin Richard and Lindsay Lou and Chris and Marie Campbell. I'm not thinking about Aaron Hernandez, who was such a moron. He had a $40 million contract. He was still shooting people. That's my fault that he's a psycho. It's not my fault. I didn't tell him to kill those people. But I was treated worse than the actual murderer. And people were calling me a murderer, saying that I led him to kill himself, which there was no proof of whatsoever. There's absolutely no indication that that's true. His own brother called me because he was so concerned about the threats and said it wasn't true. But people will still, today, I got one of those hate emails. So when you talk about that was probably the biggest no I ever got. And it really made me want to back down from investigative reporting. But it's too important. And in the end, I was right. He did kill Odin Lloyd because Odin Lloyd walked in on him in a intimate relationship with his high school boyfriend. Why is that relevant? Because he murdered somebody over it. So I could back down and never do it again. Or I could say it's important because, and I love, you know, the Patriots. I love New England. I love all things Boston. But if the NFL doesn't change its ways and stop covering up the bad behavior of their good star players, then there's going to continue to be domestic violence. And there's going to continue to be the kind of crap that we saw with that player dragging his girlfriend into the elevator by her hair. It's, so it has nothing to do, I don't even care about Aaron Hernandez. It has to do with the NFL. We all know the Patriots knew that Aaron was a psycho. They made him buy a house next to a babysitter so they could keep an eye on him. But he was a good player and he helped bring us to a Super Bowl so we could overlook the fact that he smoked angel dust and shot people. Well, maybe we need to change that culture. So if I back down, if I take that no and back down from these ridiculous haters, then who's going to call people out? Because it's not really happening anymore. People are not like, people don't want controversy. They don't want to be in the mix of conflict. Well, some of us have to do it because, you know, some, you know, facts are very stubborn things, but sometimes they need some help getting out there. Yeah. And if, if everybody backed down, then you would never, if, if you took, if I took that no, then I would be resting on my laurels and I'm not willing to do that. Well, you answered what's the official, uh, the question, which was the word no means what to you. And I guess for that, you're, you're really, you know, it's just, it's just another opinion. But it's not necessarily the right one. <laughs> Maybe that. Perfectly I mean, said. Right? Perfectly said. And, the, and then the I next question. I said it that articulately and shortly. No, well, I didn't really <laughs> ask it yet, but that's an incredible story. And I didn't even know that you had that to that degree. I can't imagine dealing with that. Um, that's, a, that's a special toughness that you have. Um, next thing. Do you have a, a mantra, like a, a go-to mantra when everything goes sideways on you? Do you have anything that gets you through it? Um, you know what I love? There was one of the very first, he actually was the very first man to die on 9-11, the Reverend Michael Judge. They're trying to canonize him and make him a saint now. 
but he has this prayer and I always love it. So when I, when I get jammed up, I always think he was funny. He was like this alcoholic priest who helped a million guys get sober. Everybody loved Michael judge. And he said, Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say and keep me out of your way. And I feel like that's beautiful because sometimes I just meet people in a way like the way you and I met or the way I, I met Chuck helped me meet Tom and all those connections and Jen helped me meet other people. It's, it, it's, it's all relative. So I just say, okay, there's a purpose for every single solitary meeting I have in my life. There's a reason for it. Sometimes I know, sometimes I'm going to get the tap on the shoulder, target and revere, and it's going to be some mobster rat who's going to apologize that he put a gun to my head 25 years earlier. And that literally has happened to me. So every single encounter that I have in my life, I think it's meant to be. And I just accept it. Last question. If you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene? And what would the advice be? Oh, that's a good one. My mother used to tell me from the time I was probably 16, stop shopping for men in the dented can section. Cause I have a tendency to pick the dented can dudes <laughs> to scribe souls. I probably would have taken that advice at age 16 and not uh, continued to this pattern of dented cans and the dented can club. So I think maybe I would have paid more attention to my personal life and less attention to my pro- professional one. Got it. <laughs> I can find a happy medium between the two. That'd be I- great. I love your your sayings. Your your phrases are awesome. Michelle McPhee, thank you so much. I'm I'm so I have like a smile on my face the entire time you're talking because you you really do make me laugh. You're you're um and, and I'm sorry on a personal level. I'm sorry that you go through all of that 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 hate coming at you, but uh, you know, it, you're a warrior for you know, for what what you believe in and what you're pursuing and and it's it's really admirable thank you thank you thank you so much what we do here is go back 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 back. all right time for my top three takeaways here we go number one come from a place of humanity in all that you do no matter what michelle does she's a flesh and blood human being first you'd be surprised when you when you make eye contact with people and and you develop even a slight connection humanly like a humanistic connection It makes the story a thousand times better and people open up. Number two, don't ever stop or give up. What I learned from this interview is if Michelle can have a literal gun to her head and get death threats because her passion and purpose is more important to her than her safety, then maybe the rest of us should stop complaining about how tough we have it. I'm a big believer in kicking in doors and making things happen. Lastly, number three, despite her tenacity and fire, Michelle does have this great quality of believing that life is serendipitous. She does absolutely make her own luck, but she also surrenders. Whatever it is that we believe in, God, the universe, the collective unconscious, sometimes we need to learn to let go and trust the process, especially when everything goes sideways. Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say and keep me out of your way. 
That is it. The podcast is over. You may go in peace. McPhee, can't thank you enough. I know anyone who's made it this far must feel inspired. Check out our show notes at 10,000knows.com for more ways to connect with Michelle, to go get her books, and please share this episode with your friends and followers if you think it can help them to hear it. Leave a review or take a screenshot on your phone and post it to your social media. Be sure to tag at 10,000knows and at Maddie Dell if you post it so we can thank you. And go to 10,000knows.com and get added to our mailing list. We'd love to have you. I'll be back in a couple of days for another of our brief Monday Morsels solo episodes to kick off your week, or we'll see you here next Friday for another one of these longer interviews. And remember, pre-order link for my book is also in the show notes if you want to be an early supporter. Much appreciated. See ya.